Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today we welcome my friend, school psychologist and parent advocate, Erin Mahaffey. Boy, are you in for a treat. We're going to talk all things evaluations and we're also going to spend some time talking about mental health and other things that school psychologists do. When I hung up with Erin, I told her that today's episode will probably go down in my top three episodes of 2021. It is just that good. I want to tell you about my friend Erin before we get started. Erin is a mother, current parent advocate at a company called Education with Erin, trained school psychologist, and a military spouse. She has experience advocating for parents and students through the special education process, has completed hundreds of psychological and educational assessments for special education eligibility, and has worked in two different states as a school psychologist. In addition to her advocacy work with parents, she enjoys providing coaching sessions to students so they can better understand their strengths and weaknesses to promote strong self-advocacy skills. If you are listening today on an audio only platform, you might want to hop over to YouTube just for the part where Erin talks about what school psychologists do because she shares a really awesome PDF. If that's not convenient for you, no worries. I actually have the PDF linked in our show notes and you can access it that way also. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, let's go. Hi, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be such a good episode because I think evaluations are always a burning topic for parents and it might be my number one beef that parents don't read evaluation reports. So I'm excited to dive in today. Why don't we start off by having you tell us about yourself and your family, your interests. Tell us about Erin. Okay, so I am Erin Mahaffey. I used to be a school psychologist. I'm currently certified in Arizona, North Carolina, and Virginia. Um, I'm a mom to a toddler. He'll be three in a couple of weeks, and I'm a parent advocate, so that's kind of how I met you, Um, and I'm also a military spouse, so I'm moving all the time, and I have a passion about making sure our military kids who are moving state to state all the time keep their services and don't lose them as they're moving because of their parents' job. I actually have an episode coming up about um, special education in the military setting, and I'm super excited um, to to record that one and to learn more myself. And I know that that's something that you're really passionate about. So maybe we'll have you on another time to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I saw it firsthand when I was working as a school psychologist, mostly in North Carolina, because it was a big military town. And I saw students coming to us from California, losing services because eligibility criteria were different from state to state. And it was so frustrating for me to see. 
So hopefully I can help parents navigate that if they need it. So frustrating. So we'll, we'll do a little um, FYI here as we get some background noise. I am recording this from Key West. I um, am down here developing a new course. I needed some time for some R&R and also uninterrupted work without the phone at my office ringing, um, et cetera. So I'm developing a course for advocates, parent advocates like Erin. Um, and unfortunately, anywhere where you are in Key West, you're going to get an airplane every once in a while. So I'll try to mute more deliberately when a plane flies over, but we'll just start with a little apology. So Erin, I think, you know, one thing with you being a military spouse that's really interesting is the fact that as an advocate, you can work just about anywhere. Can you kind of touch on that benefit that you've got? Sure. So after I started this little business um, called Education with Erin, I kind of had the vision of being able to take it with me wherever I go. Um, I know each state has their specific rules and regulations, um, so there's definitely a learning curve with that, but most of the services I provide now are completely virtual, so I consult with parents virtually after reading through IEPs or evaluation reports, and right now I'm living in Arizona, and I'm working with the clients that I had in North Carolina before we moved, so as long as I take the extra energy to, now I need to learn Arizona ways and they have different acronyms, their meetings, um, I'm able to take it with me as, as needed and also help parents or friends um, as they're moving across the country too. So it's, it's kind of a unique job to have, but I like it. <laughs> it is unique. And I think if the COVID pandemic taught us anything, it is um, how easy it is to work remotely from state to state, from even country to the country. So um, that's a wonderful benefit to you. And um, it got you out of the classroom or out of the school environment. But I know that it your did. roots are as a special or as a school psychologist. How did you um, get into that field? What led you to want to be a school psychologist? So I always knew I wanted to work in the schools. I just didn't know in what role. I didn't feel like teaching was my passion. So for a little while, I was thinking school counseling, um, but after I started working for some research labs in college, I actually ended up working in an after-school program where we were doing a fine motor skills intervention with the kids, and we were collecting a ton of data. Um, and then during the summer, I landed the role of doing all of the data into the computer software and everything. And so I just got lucky with a good academic advisor that was able to point me in the direction of school psychology, because otherwise I wouldn't have known it was a career option. It's, in my opinion, a hidden gem. Um, even though I'm doing parent advocacy right now, I see myself going back to school psychology at some point when I'm not moving every two to three years with a toddler in tow as well. Um, but yeah, <laughs> how many dogs? Uh, two golden retrievers. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. And, you know, I, to be a school psychologist, I have to relicense in every state that we go to as well. So that's kind of a little bit of a roadblock, at least with parent advocacy, I can take it with me as we go. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people think when I say I'm a school psychologist, they think school counselor. Um, but those are actually two separate roles that require different educational paths and different, um, certification or lecture in each state. So there's definitely some overlap, but they are separate jobs in the school building. 
Yeah, so that actually leads to the next question that I was gonna ask. And that is that I think a lot of parents in special education think that school psychologists just do evaluations. Um, so, and that's not true. There's much more that um, school psychologists do. Can you kind of talk about what a school psychologist does, what their role usually looks like? Um, and then also maybe while you're doing that, kind of tease out the difference between the school counselor and the school psychologist. And I will yes. um, just note quickly, I forgot to do this at the beginning, um, that we are sharing Erin's screen here. So if you are listening, um, I will put the link to this website in um, the show notes, but if you want to hop over to YouTube, you can see the document while, uh, while Erin talks about it. Okay, so to answer the question, what are school psychologists? It's a super broad question, and it's important to know that the role of a school psychologist can vary greatly between schools and especially across states. So I have a friend who's a school psychologist in the Chicago area, and she might do a handful of evaluations each year because they do most of their special education eligibility through RTI data, response to intervention data, and they are super intense on intervention data collection. Whereas my role in Virginia, North Carolina was much more assessment-based and doing over a hundred evaluations a year. So the role can vary across um, the region you're in or the you're in. But for the most part, school psychologists, um, they're experts in learning, behavior, mental health, and school systems. I think a lot of people don't realize what a system a school is and such a huge hierarchy. And um, it's important to know the ins and outs of that to help be an advocate for the students in the building. Um, school psychologists can provide mental health supports, academic and behavior supports. What most people think of when they think of a school psychologist are the evaluations and the assessments for special education. But a huge part of my role that I really liked was consultation with teachers. So if I'm just writing a report at my desk, a teacher could pop in on their lunch break and say, hey, I've got a student doing this, this, and this. Do you have any strategies I can try? Or do you have any ideas of how I can help this student? Um, so that was one of my favorite parts because it helped the staff get to know me and I could know them and we could kind of work together to solve a problem before it escalated. Um, another thing that's super important for school psychologists are to be culturally responsive um, and also do crisis prevention and intervention. So um, I did several suicide risk assessments when I was working in the buildings, but we also did some preventative presentations, just educating students about internet safety, um, suicide awareness, and things like that. Um, school psychologists support all students. I think it's important to note that the National Association of School Psychologists recommend one school psychologist for every 500 students. And pretty much every state in the country is double that right now. So we need to do better about getting school psychologists in the buildings to help our students, not only academically, um, but behaviorally, socially, and emotionally too. Um, most school well, psychologists- yeah, I would agree oh, with that ahead. because no, I'm sorry. I would agree with that because of the breadth of what school psychologists do, right? I mean, there's so much to do, and it's really hard to be an expert in every one of those fields. So um, absolutely, we, we have to keep that ratio down. And when the ratio is too high, what we end up doing is testing, and that's it. 
So we're not able to do the consultations or the counseling or um, the parent support, helping connect them to resources outside of school when we're reaching testing deadlines and IEP meetings because that takes priority. So if we can get that ratio down, we, I think we would see the ripple effect greatly for sure, which would be awesome. Um, but yeah, so this handout that you guys can see if you're watching on YouTube is just through NASP, which is the National Association of School Psychologists. Um, if you're interested in a career in school psychology, there's a huge national shortage. So if you get your degree, you will probably have no problems finding a job. Um, and so definitely consider it, especially if you are in college or considering graduate school. And this link, Ashley said, will be in the podcast description as well. Yeah, I agree that it is a hidden gem and it really offers an opportunity to be a professional in a different way in a school setting and to really help children on that system-wide basis, but then also on the one-on-one -on -one basis. So we're going to talk a lot today about evaluations, but I do want to take a quick pit stop at emotional health because I've seen a lot of studies recently come out about emotional health affecting educational outcomes, um, whether those outcomes are academic or they're functional or any other way. Um, can you talk about this, that the outcome of emotional health for children and, and more importantly, what any solutions might be? This is a great question. And depending on who you talk to, you're gonna get a wide range of different responses. Um, so I can obviously only speak from my experience um, and what I'm passionate about. Um, so to first answer that question, I will mention that the curriculum that we emphasize in our schools is mostly mandated by politicians, not educators. So we have kindergartners and first graders nationwide being encouraged to learn how to read, which is not developmentally appropriate for their developmental age at that point. So I think step one is revisiting curriculum. Our kindergartners and first graders need to be doing sharing, social skills, playtime, break time. Um, there are evidence-based social emotional curriculums that can be implemented in the classroom. They need to be doing stations and more play-based learning rather than trying to get our five-year-olds to sit in a chair for six hours and after books. Um, I think that, that would be a huge, huge thing I think that would help the students as they grow up because they're going to be taught these foundational skills that they get to third and fourth grade not having. But I also have more answers for you, but I think you maybe wanted to chime in. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm just saying that's, I completely agree with you. And, and a big problem is so many states' regulations make preschool really play based. And like Kentucky's regulations prohibit, um, it says mimeographs, but like any kind of copied documentation, no worksheets in preschool, which is, you know, developmentally appropriate in preschool, but then they go straight to the kindergarten setting where it is so, so academic. So preschool does prepare them for kindergarten if they go to public preschool. Um, and the children that qualify for free preschool are the children that would need that transition support. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you entirely. Um, and, you know, I think kind of the, the, 
thing that I see, the generalization that I see is that children don't learn well when they're in crisis. If they are having a mental health crisis or an emotional crisis, they aren't learning well. Is that kind of what, what you see as well? Absolutely. And I think any adult that's an emotional crisis isn't going to go to work and do their best job that day. So I think we also need to remember that kids are allowed to have bad days. They're not always going to be 100% because I'm not either. I'm not perfect. So I think it's important to give kids grace. And it makes it makes me think of a kiddo. I think of him often. Um, so when I was working in the schools, we had a second grader. Um, he was getting into some trouble. He was getting removed from the classroom. So we were like, what's going on with this student? Um, so we started doing a functional behavior assessment, trying to figure out what was going on. Um, he had some language days, so he was kind of difficult to interview. You didn't get a lot of information from him. Um, but long story short, after data collection, I couldn't find a pattern. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I ended up going to the attendance secretary and having her print off the calendar of the days that he had been sent home or something, any kind of discipline was noted. And when I was trying to find a pattern on the days of the week, I actually figured out that the majority of the days that he was removed from the classroom or sent to the office, he came to school late. So he had missed the bus. He was one of our kids that had free and reduced breakfast and lunch. So since he missed the bus, he didn't get breakfast that morning. So he would check in at the office. They would send him to class. I don't know if he had dinner that night. His last meal could have been right. lunch at school the, the day before. Ugh. So we, we did two things for him. Um, and this is one of my favorite cases. The success was like so visual. Everyone, it made people start to think outside the box when it came to behavior. First, his IEP case manager was already on cafeteria duty in the mornings. So he was always looking for this student. And if he didn't see him, he went through the line and got breakfast for the student because it was provided for free anyways. And he brought it to his classroom. So whenever that student showed up late, instead of sending him to class, they sent him to his case manager's classroom. He got to take 15 or 20 minutes, eat breakfast, and then he went to his um, second grade teacher's classroom. That Brilliant. was step one, made a huge difference. It also helped him build rapport with his case manager, which wasn't great to begin with. So that was a game changer. And then also our principal ordered an alarm clock for him. And you have to think, we don't have alarm clocks anymore. We all set it on our iPhone. You know, this second grader didn't have an iPhone. Right. So part of um, that time he spent with the case manager eating breakfast, they were gathered, taught the student how to set the alarm clock. So after a few weeks, this kid ended up getting himself out of bed and got his siblings on the bus and his attendance got exponentially better because we gave him those independent skills to get to school. You know, he was at home with seven siblings, a single mom. She was probably doing the best she could. She could have been working the night shift. I don't know, but giving him breakfast and teaching him how to set an alarm clock was huge for him because he wasn't coming to school hungry. He was probably mad he missed the bus. He's probably mad at his mom. So then he's probably mad at whoever was poking him in the classroom or whatever was happening, you know? So we were able to solve that problem. And I think that goes back to mental health because he's no longer getting sent out of the classroom. He's no longer seen as the bad kid. Um, he was able to participate in his school day so much more and feel included that behavior issues almost disappeared. Yeah, he was angry, right? Right, right. I mean, we've Poor all felt guy. that, you know? 
So first of all, thank you. Thank you for doing your job so extraordinarily. <laughs> I know that you impacted more than just one life with just that one um, situation. And that's really, it's so refreshing to know that there are people in schools that really care and look that way. But I think that's the whole goal, right? Like that's a perfect example of the way that we need to provide support to a child, but then also, um, you know, we can put food in the refrigerator, but eventually we have to teach somebody how to cook. And so yes. you did that. You um, put the, the, the accommodation in the plan for the child, formal or, or informal, but then you also help to teach him the functional skill of waking up himself so that he's developing the independence, which is really beautiful. So if parents are advocating or caregivers or some advocate is advocating for supplements like this, um, emotional health um, supports for a child in school, what are some things that they can do? Can, is there you know, something similar to like a toolkit that we could have to um, put in place so that parents can better advocate for mental health supports at schools? So there's a lot of layers to, to, to this question. I guess the first question would be, does the student have an IEP or not? Because that might change the path that the parent would take. Um, so to start off, I think it's important. Oh, go ahead. Well, let's assume that they do. So like, okay. you know, maybe they could get eligibility. So step one okay. is, and I do that a lot with school refusal, honestly, if I've got a child that, that you know, isn't going to school and just can't get to school, then I'll do an evaluation to see if we can qualify them for an IEP. So mm -hmm. let's assume though, cause that would be its own episode, right? Like right. how to do that. So let's assume that they're on an IEP but they don't have those emotional supports. And it's really like, you know, the way I go about it with is with a heavy, heavy dose of empathy but I bet you have something that's even better. <laughs> I don't know, empathy is always a great a great start. I mean, that's how we had success with that student. You know, we were trying to solve the problem and not just get him in trouble for everything. Um, okay. So if you're concerned about any kind of social, emotional um, things going on with your child, no matter what the age is, and your child has an IEP, um, the first step would be to email the case manager and um, let them know your concerns and request an IEP meeting, which should be easy with, I know some teams, it gets to be a little complicated, um, but I think it's also important for parents to know the resources that schools have access to, because a lot of times parents don't know that every school has a school psychologist. You know, when I was working as a school psychologist, I may have had two or three schools, but I was assigned to a certain school every Monday, Wednesday, or every Tuesday, Thursday. Same with school social workers. That's another great resource that we can be using to support our students. So school social workers often usually have two schools as well, but then every school has a school counselor. So those are three different people that you may not know because they're not the teacher in the classroom you see every day, but they are there to either support your student or the teacher, by, usually by consulting with the teacher or supporting that teacher, you see the impacts on the child every single day. So knowing those three roles is, also another great first step because you can either email them directly and say, these are the current concerns I have, or these are the behaviors I'm seeing, I need help. And if you don't know who those people are, I always suggest either asking your child's teacher or asking the, um, the whoever works at the front desk at the school, you can call them and say, 
I need to talk to the school counselor or the school social worker. Can you give me their name and email address? So that's always a resource for you. And I think it's underused resource because parents don't know they're there. And then Aaron, you know, I, I, th- I agree. I think that's the perfect first step. And the tools that they have in their toolkit are programs that the school district has purchased, right? So, you know, if we're having a hard time with emotional regulation, they might have a curriculum called Five Zones of Regulation that they can implement and you can actually add to the IEP. So there's like, just like there's reading curricula and there's math curricula, there are curricula for children's emotional health. And I think far too many parents don't understand that those things exist. So one follow-up question that I think is super helpful for parents is um, what do you do when the district says, oh, well, we aren't seeing that here? Or yeah, I think that they just have like, good days and bad days and we just have to like kind of get over it so like what do you do when the district still isn't inclined to do anything you know that's hard I mean because they'll say that about oh well he's doing mind reading here I don't know why he can't read at home but behavior is different because kids and adults they show different behavior in different settings so this kind of goes back to a podcast you had a few weeks ago about taking data as a parent, you can take some data at home and it doesn't have to be a huge spreadsheet on Excel. You know, it can be right. um, a calendar you keep at your front door and you make a tally mark every time your kid comes home off the school bus and has a complete meltdown. So you make a tally and maybe you start a timer and say, on Tuesday, she had a complete meltdown for 35 minutes before I could calm her down. On Thursday, it was another 40 minutes, but there was no meltdown Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you can come to the table and say, six times this month, we had a meltdown of over 30 minutes after school and describe what that meltdown looks like rather than you saying, well, she has a hard time when she gets home from school and she's always so emotional or she's crying. You can say how long the meltdown lasts and how many times that month it happened. And if it's happening after school, She's probably working so hard to hold it together during the school day for whatever reason, the team would have to determine that that supports need to be put in place to help her not have those meltdowns. Or maybe they'd see, I think I said the meltdowns were Tuesday and Thursday. Maybe those are the days she has PE and PE is just overstimulating for her or something like that. So by coming to the table with that data, it gives them more information to really analyze to help make a decision about what's gonna support the child that you're discussing. You are such a good advocate. I'm so (laughs) proud of you for that answer. (laughs) I loved that. That was really, really great. Okay, evaluations. Super irritating for parents in special education. Like maybe we should let the plane pass quickly. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. This is is real life. It's a good problem to have. That's true. I always tell my um, podcast guests that I like for this to sound like a conversation between two friends. And in this case, it is, this is what it is. Um, But, you know, we try to record start to finish. We don't do a whole lot of editing because I want people to feel like they're literally sitting at my um, kitchen table in in a conversation. But, you know, if you're at my kitchen table today, there's planes flying over. Um, We're just in your Key West backyard today. It's fine. It's fine. You're you're here and we have not cleaned up after Tropical Storm Elsa, so make yourself comfortable. Um, 
So evaluations, super irritating for every parent in special education, myself included. I remember reading my first evaluation and saying, he made my child look like a monster. Um, and, you know, but also super, super valuable and super, super important. So generally, why are evaluations so important? <sighs> and, and I know this is hard for because you get like a 12 page report talking about everything your student struggles with. And it's a hard pill to swallow for, for some people. Um, but really an evaluation should be used to inform instruction. That is what I was always taught in school is that yes, we're testing for eligibility and we wanna see if there's a disability there, but not every kid is gonna qualify and that's okay. I don't want every kid to be disabled. But that evaluation is going to tell us strengths, weaknesses, and that's going to help us target instruction because I'm probably testing that student because they're struggling. Doesn't mean there's a disability, but if there's not a disability, that evaluation will give me information to help the teacher put some accommodations and modifications in place that they can do for all students, not necessarily requiring an IEP or a 504. So it's important to make sure the evaluation isn't just bare minimum for eligibility, but really digging into the strengths and weaknesses of that child to help them. It might help them figure out which intervention program is going to be best. They might have five reading programs to choose from that um, the reading teacher can do without an IEP. So it kind of, it broadly, that's the main point of the evaluation. So I love that you said addresses strengths and weaknesses because far mm -hmm. too often we as parents see like this is what's wrong with our child this is where those weaknesses lie and you're right they don't always lead to eligibility but they do lead to driving some kind of instruction um but also a purpose of the evaluations is to figure out what the relative strengths are so that we can capitalize on those strengths and creating specially designed instruction if somebody yep. does qualify right i mean that's absolutely. like that's the whole thing so absolutely um yeah I, I loved your answer again, but I just got excited when you said strengths. That's what happens. I'm like, oh, yeah. She and said I, that was part of my training program is to write a strengths-based report, but also for eligibility, you have to have these weaknesses. You have to highlight where those deficits are to show that they meet the criteria for a disability. So it's hard because you got to write the hard stuff. And as a parent, you have to read the hard stuff, but it's, re it's a required part of the process, which is hard. Right. That is the purpose, really, mm -hmm. is to determine eligibility and to identify those strengths and weaknesses, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what kinds of things do we test for? You know, kind of as we're looking at evaluations really kind of plug into eligibility. So, um, you know, we start in special education and um, the way I start the special education and advocacy lab is we talk about kind of parent rights so that we know what we're allowed to, to do when we talk about like the structure of the IEP meeting, but then we start special education with child fine. Schools have an obligation to identify and educate children with um, qualifying disabilities. And so um, the question is, do you qualify for special education? Do you qualify for that golden nugget, the specially designed instruction and accommodations mm -hmm. and modifications that you get? So we call that eligibility in the special education world. Um, and so, you know, for what do we test? And and I know that the answer is, well, it depends. And so mm -hmm. you can you can take it away from there. It it does depend. And you know, you don't 
as a school psychologist or as a parent reading a report, you might have um, multiple kids on IEPs. You don't want to see the school psychologist using the same test for every student. The assessment battery should be specific to the referral question. So is the student struggling with reading? Is the student struggling with behavior? Those are gonna be completely different assessment batteries. So it's important for the school psychologist to get that pre-referral packet of information if they're at the referral meeting to even know what they're testing for because the student just doesn't just walk into my office and I pull out a test kit. There are some that are pretty standard to be used with everybody. Um, but it really depends on what the student is struggling with. But broadly, we can assess academic concerns, social concerns, emotional difficulties, and any kind of behavioral needs, which are kind of huge um, umbrella terms. Um, under academics, we can break down evaluations into reading, writing, and math. But then even further, you can break reading down into basic reading. Is it phonological processing? Is it reading comprehension? Maybe they can read the words, but they're not comprehending what it means. Or is it reading fluency? Are they just reading so slowly and it's taking so much energy that they're really able to take any meaning out of it? So from academics, you can break it down to reading and then the fine parts of reading. So it's really important to know what the area of concern is because they can all be, all of those categories can be broken down as needed to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I oftentimes advocate for a really broad evaluation because, you know, I always say, I don't know that I'm actually looking for dyslexia, for example, or for a sensory processing disorder. Um, but I, if I see like a little inkling of something, then I know just enough to be dangerous and say, what well, it can't hurt to test them. You know, let's go ahead mm -hmm. and see if we can get that information. But, but yes, I agree with you um, entirely on that. So. So the next question then is, how do parents read those darn reports? Um, any tips or strategies to get through them and to, to make them actually meaningful? Yeah, and like you said, usually you're going to be reading about areas of weakness or things that are difficult for your child. So my first piece of advice is, one, always try to get the evaluation report a couple days prior to the meeting. I say a minimum of two days because I know sometimes. Wait, number number oh. one, Erin, isn't to make sure that you have a margarita next to you. That that was step two. You have to have the evaluation report first and then make your cocktail. <laughs> okay, right, because otherwise it'll melt. <laughs> yes, and some parents might need that. Okay, um, I agree with you. Get it in advance. Carry on. Yeah, so I usually say a minimum of two days because some states don't require that the report be available at all, whereas other states require that the report is available five days in advance. So you can always ask your case manager or the school psychologist when the evaluation report will be available for you to pick up before the meeting. And that really helps us get into your question, Ash, because first, you need to read the report with an open mind. This is my advice. Just read it once, read it through, don't take notes, don't highlight it, nothing. Maybe have that beverage next to you as you're reading it and then walk away. Just read it once, let it digest and walk away. Go cook dinner, go to bed, whatever. Then you're gonna come back and read it again, whether that's an hour later or a day later, however much time you need to be able to process it again with an open mind. And this is when I suggest you come looking at it through the lens of strengths 
weaknesses and questions. And my type A self would have three different colored highlighters, but you guys can do whatever works for you. Look for strengths. Try to figure out what is your student good at. You might already know as the parent, but it's important to look at them under this psychological evaluation lens because it might give you new information. Take note of weaknesses. It might say um, working memory was an area of weakness or was below average. Highlight that in a certain color or slit so that you know when they're going through it at the table to stop there and say, what does this mean? Because the next part is ask questions either put a question mark on the side of the paper or highlight something in a certain color that makes you say, what does this mean? And that can be broad. It can say, what does this mean? I don't understand. Or what does this mean? How can I help? Because us as advocates and you as a special ed attorney or as parents, we're always saying the school needs to do this. The school needs to accommodate for this. The school needs to do this. But also what are we doing at home to help these students? So let's say maybe the report shows your child has weak working memory. At home, you might say, all right, I want you to go upstairs, brush your teeth, make your bed, and bring the laundry downstairs. 10 minutes later, your kid comes downstairs and maybe has the laundry. He obviously hasn't brushed his teeth and you know the bed wasn't made because you just walked up there and it wasn't. So instead of your child getting in trouble at home for not listening or following instructions, you now know that's a working memory issue and you can accommodate that at home. Send him upstairs to brush his teeth. And when he says he's done, hey, make your bed. Tell me you're done. Okay, bring me the laundry down. You just broke those three steps down into each individual single step instructions, which is gonna help your child be more successful if the data shows that working memory is an issue. Yeah, that is an extraordinary answer. And I love the color-coded highlighters, of course. <laughs> um, I, 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 love, I love that because you're reading it um, from the standpoint of really understanding it and doing that with some humility. You know, if you don't understand something, of course, ask questions. Number one advocacy tip, ask questions. Um, one thing that I do that I used to not do at all, but I actually really take time to underline things that must go into the IEP, you know, the, the absolute nuts and bolts part of the um, evaluation report, in my opinion, should go into the IEP and those present levels of performance to identify the strengths and weaknesses. And then I also, because I know, you know, a little bit about specially designed instruction as an attorney and advocate, I take time to really kind of think about what programming I think that specific profile might kind of plug into because different programs um, have, you know, are really great for children with different kinds of profiles. Um, but, you know, that might be kind of like step 35, that might be advanced evaluation reading, right? Yeah, definitely. Because most, and I'm kind of thinking lens of an initial evaluation um, most parents come to the table not even knowing what special ed is, and they have this picture in their head of what it was 40 years ago, where if you're special ed with an IEP, you're in a different classroom. So it's important to really right. start at step one, understand the evaluation, and then hopefully you have a good team or you have a great advocate who can say, well, this kind of looks like what percent of inclusion or pull out support or what level of support that student would need, just like you were mentioning, what kind of programming does this lead to? But most parents are not at that 
level. Um, I really, really, really focus at, at part of my training was focusing on sure parents understand what it means to the point where after we submitted a report in grad school, we had to, um, in Microsoft Word, it'll tell you what the reading level is. And we had to keep the reading level of our reports under a sixth grade reading level. So we couldn't use words like oh, that's awesome. co cognitive ability, because what does that mean? You know, so it really helped right. me kind of think, how can just the average person pick up this report and know what it means? Because it's not just the school's job to understand it. I really want the parent to understand it because that student, at least in my experience, could move to a different state next year. And the parent needs to know what works and what doesn't work for their student. You know, that kind of raises a, a, a good um, recommendation that I don't think I've ever like taught. I don't think I've ever even told anybody like out loud that I do this, but I oftentimes read things in reports that I don't understand and I immediately go Google them. And while parents are telling me their children's diagnoses or medication list or anything like that, if I am not familiar with something, I will Google it and at least get, you know, the WebMD version or the Cleveland Clinic version of what the thing is or what the thing does or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and so that kind of goes into like, you can find answers. You might not get the school's interest and values. And that's why it's so important to ask the school questions. Um, but you can also get information from a wide variety of places. Um, Absolutely. So then I think we kind of talked about how parents use the reports in special education, right? Do you have anything else to say about that? Like, how do we actually use them? I think this kind of goes back to the example I gave about taking data. So maybe you're advocating that your child needs a certain accommodation, like multiple step instructions broken down into one or two steps. Instead of saying, I really think Ashley would benefit from this. You can say at home, when I break things down into one to two steps, Ashley is 85% more likely to do all of her chores. Instead of, this goes back to what we've said, like you need to speak in facts and not feelings. You have data to say, I know this works. And so it's really hard for a school to say, well, we're not gonna do that, even though you're proving to them based on the data you have that something works. So you can't do that unless you understand the evaluation results. So in this example, you understand that his, your child's working memory is impacting their ability to follow multi-step instructions. So things like that can really be a game changer at the IEP table to either get an accommodation put in or a goal added. Agree entirely. And that's exactly the, the reason why parents should be active participants in IEP teams, because you know, the overall purpose of IDEA is to um, promote the child's further education, employment, and independent living skills. Mm -hmm. And um, all of that is going to happen outside of the school setting. So the parents are kind of like the, the conductor of that symphony. And if we don't have parent input on what's happening at home, then we aren't getting that information, right? We can't target instruction to those particular goals. So what if parents get a report and they don't agree with something? Um, there's probably lots of steps along the way that parents can take. Why don't you walk us through some of those steps? Okay, so I think if you're a parent listening to this podcast, you're probably in a lot of Facebook groups, or you read a lot of blogs, so you're probably very well informed and you know your right to an independent educational evaluation or an IEE. Um, but 
we'll get to that. So that is not my first step, even though I know a lot of you might be thinking that. Um, and my perspective might be different because I come from sitting on at the IEP table as a school psychologist on the school's side. Um, so that might make me a little more willing to work with the school than other people are. But first, I always wanna suggest that you give the school a chance to fix it. So maybe in the case you disagree with the evaluation because a certain component is missing, maybe they needed to have a behavior rating scale, but that didn't make it into the report for whatever reason. Maybe I sent it to the teacher three weeks ago, she never sent it back, or she sent it to me after I'd already submitted the report, whatever the reason is give the team a chance to fix it. And it might only be a difference of three or four days for them to get that added to the evaluation. Or maybe it's um, a behavior issue and the student needed to be observed more times to give a better idea of what's actually going on. And if someone was super busy with their testing caseload, they only got two observations in and they saw them in music and art and those are the students' favorite classes. Give them a, if that's gonna be the make or break for eligibility, ask for them to extend the timeline, give them another consent form to do more observations across settings. Personally, the team should have been on top of it and on it, that's my professional opinion, but I also wanna give them a chance to fix it before you start getting advocates or lawyers involved if it's just something a couple weeks is gonna fix. Yeah, I wanna tell you a funny story about that um, I agree. That's how I do things too. And I oftentimes actually write notes on the evaluation report and I'll send it back if I've got enough questions or, um, you know, even just comments about, well, we don't see this at home. Um, could you like, we'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about how this actually looks in school, you know, that kind of thing. But one time I was going into a meeting and the special ed director stopped me on the way in and she said, oh, Ashley, um, I know that this evaluation is insufficient. And so I figured that you probably would be asking for an IEE. And so how about if we give you X number of dollars? Um, and so first of all, I wasn't going to ask for an IEE. I was going to ask that school do a little bit more. Um, and second of all, the amount that she offered me was one and a half times what my expert would have charged, my psychologist would have charged to do it and I thought at first I was like well if I say no then she's going to think that I'm like not worth my weight you know at all mm -hmm. but then I realized if I say no it shows that I'm even more reasonable than what anybody else would have assumed and so I talked to my client briefly I was like oh, okay let me talk to my client and I explained it to my client ultimately we said to school why don't you go back to the drawing board this is what we think is not there um and I really appreciated that she, you know, that she came to me at that time. And so we could do that with, with mm -hmm. some grace and offer the school a little bit more opportunity. But it was really funny because who turns down money? From a district I can't like believe that? she just gave it to you on a silver platter like that. That's crazy. It was really, <laughs> it was really funny. I was like, that's how you know that a district knows that, that you mean business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Aaron, and you know, I life happens. It, yeah. Oh, I was gonna say life happens. No, you know, you, you might walk into the classroom four times to do an observation and there's a substitute in there because the teacher is at home with a sick kid. You know, when, as a school psychologist, if you're only there twice a week, cause you have two other schools that limits time too. So I always say, give, give them a chance. If they're pushing back, you obviously have steps you can go through, but that's my first, first step always. Yeah, right. You have to allow reasonable yeah. um, 
accommodation. You're asking for reasonable accommodations, so you have to allow the school reasonable accommodations also. Erin, I am so happy that I met you. I'm so happy you're in my life. You are so wise and reasonable, and you are just a fabulous advocate. Why don't you tell everybody what you're doing now, how to find you so that people can follow you and learn more from you? Okay, I would love that. So as I mentioned at the beginning of our podcast, I am a parent advocate. I do provide all of my services completely virtually or remotely. So if you just want me to take a look at your IEP or read some evaluation results to help kind of put them into English for you and help break it down so that you understand it, I can definitely do that. Um, We can always schedule a consultation call. And since I am doing all of this virtually, whatever state you're in, it doesn't really matter. Um, I can do some of that broad stuff no matter where you are. If it starts to get into the nitty gritty and we really need someone specializing in your state, we always um, find somebody that could meet your needs for that. But to at least get started, we can always have a consultation call. You can find me on Facebook at Education with Erin. I'm also on Instagram. Someone stole my handle before I got it. So that's Education with Erin Insta, I-N-S-T-A. Um, and my email is educationwitherin at gmail.com. And then just to follow suit, my website is educationwitherin.com. Awesome. You are such a bright light. Thank you so much, Erin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I cannot wait to tell you about our affiliate program. The Special Education and Advocacy Lab opens for enrollment on July 15th, 2021. And not only have I slashed prices to make my online, on-demand, nuts and bolts training more accessible to parents, but I also am rolling out this affiliate program. If you have friends that are parents of children on IEPs, and if you want to learn more about special education advocacy yourself so that you're a more effective parent at your child's IEP team, I encourage you to check out the affiliate program. You can save money on your own registration or on any other product in my library by joining the affiliate program. Check out the link on my website for more information.